Newport, Rhode Island, 1636. It was a colony of outsiders, miscreants, eccentrics. The Puritans of Massachusetts had banished Roger Williams and his followers for daring to question religious doctrine, and this group of exiles traveled southward to purchase a small piece of land from the local Narragansett Indians. Finding fresh water and resources, Williams decided that God himself had granted him divine provisions and named the settlement Providence. In turn rose the settlements of Newport and Portsmouth, who formed an alliance under the united banner of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, better known today by its shorthand name, Rhode Island. Almost 60 years later, Rhode Island became a major port of trade and a bastion of religious freedoms, and in 1694, a young sailor by the name of Thomas II was doing all that he could to take advantage of this coastal retreat by raising a family and working as a merchant sailor. But Thomas II's world was just a bit too small, the seas too wide, and the horizon too inviting. Swabbing the decks and hauling cargo might put bread on the table, but it didn't offer a whole lot of adventure. So one day, Two told his wife and children that he was off to seek fortune and glory in the waters of Bermuda, and he arrived there with gold in his pocket and an interest in purchasing a share in a ship of his own. This ship turned out to be the Amity, but the Amity wasn't a vessel for hauling rum or bananas or sugarcane. No, it had a much more devious purpose. The governor at the time commissioned the Amity as a privateering ship. Humankind had reached a point in time where modern shipbuilding technology had advanced to such a degree that sailing was a prominent means of commerce. It was also a lawless economy, being in international waters and hardly regulated. To journey across the seven seas invited numerous perils, man-made, natural, and depending on who you ask, supernatural. But no dangers more more realistic and inevitable as those of pirates and privateers. The name privateer was just a formality, the equivalent of government-sanctioned thieves or sea-bound mercenaries. Privateers assaulted and commandeered foreign vessels at the behest of their commissioners, usually monarchs and men in high positions of government. With a simple letter of mark, privateers had full sway over capturing vessels and loot, with privateers and their sponsors splitting the share of the bounty. And this practice ensured rough seas, indeed. Then, there were the pirates, who did the same thing, basically, without a governing body to answer to. Men and women without kings, pirates would plunder ships regardless of affiliation, though some had their own specific allegiances. On paper, privateers were hired to combat piracy, but these lines often blurred. For eager and capable men like Two, privateering offered all the thrills and adventures of piracy under a dubious sense of legitimacy. Eight guns strong, the crew of 46, including Two, the Amity was a formidable vessel. Originally, Two was partnered up with a man named George Dew, who was a bit more morally gray than your average privateer and was no doubt an influence. That said, Two was still under the jurisdiction of Bermuda, and he carried out his duties by turning the ocean into hell for French sailors. 
shortly after embarking on another expedition, the Amity and George Dew's ship were separated by a raging storm. Cut off from his mentor, Thomas too found himself left to his own devices, and with so much experience and potential, Two's ambitions were apparent. He simply saw the injustice of it all, so much wealth taken from one rich man's coffers only for the sake of filling another's, and with only scraps to show for the people who put in the effort. Besides that, none of that money was serving any public good. Something had to be done. Thomas, too, ascended the deck and addressed his men, offering to become the sole captain of the Amity. He announced that the vessel was no longer under the commands of the Bermudian government. Still, he told them that he would not force them to follow, and openly asked for their consent to elect him as their leader. The following words, short and to the point, stated his cause. You probably realize that the attack on the French factory will be of little value to the public, and will give none of us any reward. There is not any prospect of booty. Speaking for myself, I took the commission for the sake of employment, so I am of the opinion we should turn our thoughts to bettering our condition. If so inclined, I shall shape a course which will lead us to ease and plenty for the rest of our days. A moment of silence washed over the deck, quiet save for the Caribbean winds and rattled sails. And then, according to pirate lore anyway, the crew of the Amity swore their fealty to two with the oath, a gold chain or a wooden leg, we'll stand with you. From here on out, Thomas too became the scourge of the Indian Ocean, far from the power of Bermuda and the crown. There he assaulted various Indian dows, taking rare spices, ivory, gold, silks, silver, and gemstones, and dividing the loot among himself and his crew. One successful endeavor netted the Amity 3,000 pounds per man and 8,000 pounds for two himself. Despite Two's many victories, they were largely bloodless. Though he was ferocious, Two's greatest weapon by and large was his charisma. His aim was to take almost everything from a man, save for his life. In 1693, after robbing the Indian Ocean blind, Two and the Amity set sail for Madagascar, off the east coast of the African continent. Madagascar was a perfect haven for piracy, as its shoals were rocky and not conducive to most British privateering and naval vessels. It had plenty of safe harbors, resources, and somewhat friendly tribes who were willing to help out men who pitched in with their tribal conflicts. And even when those wars were won, the native populace knew they couldn't go up against the pirates' technology, and plus, the pirates had started marrying their women and raising biracial children. This intermingling, pseudo-colonization, and weird diplomacy resulted in an alliance that mostly worked. A good majority of the Malagasy, or the people of Madagascar, were content to leave the pirates to their own devices. Madagascar was also the location of the Ile Saint-Marie, or St. Mary's. Ten miles from the northeastern coast of Madagascar, it was a narrow island with natural defensive fortifications. It was founded by the notorious pirate Adam Baldridge, who welcomed his fellow buccaneers from far and wide, ocean-weary, and in need of a drink. And it is here where the Amity found a new refuge with half of his crew. 
For a time, Tu is content to relax amongst the exotic splendor. I'm not sure what exactly he thought of the wife and kids he left behind, but by many accounts, he sent enough money back to them to make them all very comfortable. Regardless, he became restless and itching for more piracy. And at the behest of his crew, they all sailed off to the local seas in search of trouble. The Amity crew didn't get far before they saw a lone vessel, ripe for the plundering. Two raised his black sail, emblazoned with the image of a muscular arm brandishing a scimitar, when the other ship, in turn, raised its own black flag. But instead of things getting really awkward, this was kind of the pirate equivalent to flashing each other the same gang colors, so two pulled up to this friendly ship to see who the old, dirty scallywag was. That scallywag turned out to be James Mission, and that ship was the Victoire. Mission's crew was radically and racially diverse, a mixture of ethnically French, Italian, and freed slave, but they all identified themselves as men who had given up their nationalities. Two and Mission hit it off. Two, after all, was formidable, but personable, and Mission was more of a radical hippie than a pirate. He was an anarchist, an abolitionist, and a man of the people who shared two sensibilities and contempt for rich men who leached off the wealth of others. Over a hearty feast, Mission regaled to with many of his counts. As the night went on, the candle wicks wound down, the two men finding themselves at the bottom of the bottle, when James Mission spoke of his own Madagascar hideaway. Two, of course, indulged his host, but after seeing the ramshackle huts of St. Mary's, another pirate oasis seemed nothing special. But Mission spoke like a man with a secret, and Two was intrigued. The captain decided that Two was trustworthy enough, and with a flash of mischief in his eyes, Mission asked him if he wanted to see it for himself. The Victoire and the Amity sailed to an uncharted area of water among Madagascar's Antangil Bay. Navigation was treacherous, as this hidden inlet was guarded by tall, jagged rocks and notorious sandbars. Into a shadowy cove, Two navigated his ship, wondering if he had just fallen for an elaborate trap. Then the passage opened up, revealing a place the likes of which the crew of the Amity had never seen before, and it was worth far more than any mere chest of doubloons. In the greenery and blue waters of a hidden Madagascar sat a full-fledged colony that may have resembled Tew's native Newport or even a contemporaneous English town. And this was no mirage, but a living city at the edge of the bush, with roads and commerce, livestock, and men and women of all colors and backgrounds. Here was a mighty and grand harbor, spoiled with ships, many of them recognizable and legendary pirate vessels. In other words, it was a secret paradise. As they drew near, Two, who after so many years plundering was hard to rattle, stood with his mouth agape. And after finding his words, he turned to James' mission for an explanation. But the founder of this haven merely gestured to his colony, the very first, and quite possibly the last, pirate republic the earth has ever seen. Welcome to Libertalia, he said, and welcome home.
Captain Hook, the Dread Pirate Roberts, Long John Silver, Jack Sparrow. If you were to trace the inspirations for these colorful sea dogs of fiction on a map, with a big X on it preferably, you would come upon the histories of their real counterparts. And if you were to go further still up the pirate family tree, you would arrive at one single common source. In many ways, it was just one book that introduced the world to the mythology, murder, and mayhem that is pirate culture. They say there is nothing new under the sun, and the hot topic of early 1700s London was true crime. But back in the day, we didn't have podcasts. We had to get by on plain old books. And books on the lurid, the exotic, and the criminal were all the rage. We would actually see this again a century later with the rise of the Penny Dreadful. In 1724, the literary world of London was taken by storm with the arrival of a book called A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates, authored, huge air quotes, by Captain Charles Johnson. Contained within the pages of a general history was a tell-all on the larger-than-life biographies and misadventures of the most notorious pirates who ever sailed the seven seas. It included characters such as Edward Teach, Teach, Thatch, whatever, better known as Blackbeard, who would frighten his victims by lighting wicks under his hat so it looked like his face was on fire. And, true to the name, he would keep his eponymous beard braided in thick strands tied with ribbons. And there were also tales of lady and non-gender conforming pirates, who were just as ruthless as their counterparts and commanded a fair amount of respect from their peers. Two such figures were Anne Bonny and Mary Mark Reed, the latter of whom was kind of gender fluid. Anne took on a lover, her mentor, the feared Calico Jack Rackham, who taught her all about pirating. But being a woman on the open seas was even more dangerous than being a woman at literally every other point in history, so Anne had to dress herself up in drag. Rackham and Bonnie eventually captured the ship of Mark Reed, who had taken control of their husband's vessel after his passing. Anne took a shine to Mark and began to pass on her pirate knowledge. Mark fell in love with Anne, who they thought was a biological male, and eventually Mark confessed their love to her, revealing that they were actually female-bodied. Rackham had already been suspicious of the relationship, so this was terribly convenient, as Bonnie coyly revealed that she was, in fact, a woman. Whether or not this turned into the coolest, polyamorous, non-gender, binary pirate fanfiction of all time is unknown, but we can all hope. Captain Johnson's book was full of exciting tales like this, all of which many lit scholars believe were heavily exaggerated, if not outright fabricated. But history shows that most, if not all, of these characters were real, one way or another. And what about Captain Charles Johnson himself? Well, more on him later. Fact-checking history can often be a grueling and difficult affair. Accounts were not documented as accurately as they sometimes are today. The only textual evidence we have for the pirate colony of Libertalia, also known as Libertatia, comes from a general history of the pirates. Keep in mind, that's just one primary source. The origins of the successful colony can be traced to two figures, James Mission and a boisterous Dominican priest named Signor Caraccioli. By Johnson's account, 
Mission was a French naval officer from Provence, France, who had settled down in Rome between wars. He was raised Catholic, and there being no better place in the late 1600s-1700s to get your Christianity on than Rome, Michelin likely thought he would be among friends. He was also from the upper echelons of society, or at least well-respected enough to gain entry into the inner circle of the papal court. And what he found there disgusted him. Instead of pious and charitable men devoted to good works, Mission found a decadent and greedy bunch of hedonists who were content to abuse their power. It didn't take too long before Mission was like, uh, maybe I need to rethink this whole Catholicism thing. So he fell in line with more liberal thinkers among the priesthood, including a so-called lewd but jovial priest named Caraccioli. The drunken and talkative priest, for all of his vices, had a lot of progressive things to say about the social good, advocating humanitarianism and equality without necessarily giving up one's spirituality. He converted mission to his way of thinking, which dictated that every man was born free, and that greed and oppression of others for money was the root cause of human suffering. He was also firmly against slavery, saying that no man, as a creation of God, had the right to rule over another. Caraccioli, as the kids would say, was woke. And for some reason, Mission heard all of that and was like, okay, we should totally become pirates, because Mission took control of the Victoire, with Caraccioli serving as the brains of the operation. They fashioned themselves as pirate Robin Hoods, focusing solely on robbing merchant vessels. They were also anti-slavery, and when they captured a Dutch slave trading ship, they invited the freed slaves to either join them, or they would simply give them a ride back to their homeland. And because pirates are really cool no matter where you come from, a good chunk of the liberated Africans agreed. Unfortunately, we do not have nearly as much documentation of African and black pirates because, you know, racism. And that's precisely why a lot of these men who did end up having their names written down went on to become pirates. If we can take a quick detour down this little talked about period of history, there were a famous trio of black pirates who went by the nickname the Mulattoes because subtlety hadn't been invented yet. Diego Martin was a former ex-slave from Cuba who sailed the Gulf of Mexico in 1630 and had the support of the Spanish Navy because he was just that much of a badass. Then there was Diego de los Reyes, aka Diego Lucifer because again, subtlety. And lastly there was Diego Grillo who ended up becoming a big name in the pirate friendly city of Tortuga. Then there was Thomas J. Wansley, an African-American who was active towards the tail end of the Age of Piracy. He and his white friend, the pirate Joseph Gibbs, were great pirates, but not so much great people. They were said to have kidnapped pretty women from the vessels they overtook, and killed the children and plainer-looking women. It is widely believed now that these lurid tales may have been embellishments by those who wanted to convict them, which is entirely possible because history shows us that Wansley was involved in only one robbery. When he was captured and sentenced, Wansley rightfully accused the prosecution of racial bias, saying, I have often understood that there is a great deal of difference in respect of color, as I have seen it in this court. My white accomplices were as guilty as I am, and these witnesses have tried to facet upon me a greater guilt than is just, for their life has been given to them. 
You have taken the blacks from their own country to bring them here and to treat them ill. I have seen this. He was executed shortly after. Such gross inequality between the races was one of Mission and Caraccioli's motivations for piratical anarchism. Regardless of social standing or race, wealth was split evenly among the crew of 200, which functioned as a democracy, with all major decisions put to vote. This system of governance on board the Victoire would serve as the prototype for the colony of Libertalia. We are told that the Victoire discovered the hidden bay off the coast of Madagascar, and after finding fresh water and fertile land, they went ashore and struck a deal with the local Malagasy. Unlike the pirate equivalent of truck stops such as St. Mary's, Libertalia was conceived from the get-go as a full-fledged city-state. The colony's first non-pirate citizens were brought over after the Victoire captured an English slave ship containing 240 men women, and children of African origin. Again, we do not know precisely which countries or kingdoms they were from because, well, even today, most Americans think Africa is just one big country anyway. The men aboard the Victoire that had initially been rescued were shocked, but probably not that shocked, to discover friends and family among the enslaved. They also convinced them to come and join their fledgling colony. Supplemented by piracy and agriculture, Libertalia became a commune with an elected council put to popular vote. Food was grown or caught, and all wealth was stored in a centralized treasury. The original crew of the Victoire renounced their heritage and took on the eponym Liberi. The Liberi even had their own language, a creole that mixed the local dialect with the native languages of its crew. In essence, Libertalia was the first nation of its kind, a socialist democracy before such things actually existed. It sounds almost too good to be true. And that's because it probably was. Here's the thing. James' mission likely never even existed. And Captain Johnson, too, for that matter. Thomas, too, now, he definitely did exist. But that whole part with him meeting James' mission, that was an embellishment. This bit was most likely added to the story in order to lend it an air of authenticity. So, you're probably confused right about now. Well, take solace in the fact that history's literary detectives are right there with you. Captain Johnson was most certainly a pen name. We just don't know who was behind that pen. Whoever he was, he knew a sailor's vernacular and lingo, maritime terminology, and basically the things that only somebody who had been in a position of authority on a ship would know. Theory one is, it was actually a guy named Charles Johnson, who was a playwright, barkeeper, self-proclaimed lawyer, and political provocateur. He produced several politically charged plays that often bordered on the salacious or scandalous. One of these was called The Successful Pirate, which follows the fictionalized life of the very real and very naughty Henry Avery. Since no controversy is bad controversy, naturally the play became must-see for English audiences. Johnson also wrote well-developed female characters, which for being a man in the early 1700s England was progressive for the time. Others say that the author of A History of the Pirates simply chose this Charles Johnson's name because of his famous swashbuckling performance. 
In fact, shortly after the play came out is when we see all of these true crime biographies start to pop up, so maybe Captain Charles Johnson was just trying to ride the trends. Then there's Nathaniel Mist, a famous publisher who lived right across the way from the printing house and bookstore that produced A History of the Pirates. Nathaniel Mist, as with most of the usual suspects in this mystery, had strong political ideologies that frequently landed him in trouble. He was a Jacobite, which was a pretty big no in post-Civil War Britain, and due to the controversial literature he published, he frequently had his hired writers adopt pseudonyms to help protect their true identities. Mist was also a former sailor who had toured the Caribbean and was allegedly fond of outlaw and pirate culture. A strong contender for the real identity of Captain Charles Johnson, to be sure. The most prevalent theory is that Captain Charles Johnson was the alias of an author you might have heard of, Daniel Defoe, writer of Robinson Crusoe and Moll Flanders. If you look at everything Captain Charles Johnson mentions in his pirate book, there's a fair amount of evidence to support a solid case for Defoe. He was politically minded and was known to associate with all walks of society, including criminals. As a journalist, he covered criminal trials for actual pirates, and his sister married a shipbuilder who was chummy with pirate hunters. Oh, and he was also a spy. In his time, he was known to have utilized almost 200 different pen names. Was one of these nom de plumes Captain Charles Johnson, perhaps? The concept of Libertalia as a communal paradise would be in keeping with Defoe's ideologies, as well as a proud literary device in usage at the time. You see, this was before freedom of speech, at a time in English history when it was dangerous to have a political opinion at all. Many authors hid their activism and ideologies behind the facade of parables or fantastic literature. These were often well concealed within greater works without a strictly political bent. So was Libertalia just a societal roadmap, courtesy of the witty and wily Daniel Defoe? Well, it's hard to say. Even from a strictly pragmatic standpoint, pirate colonies did exist, just not on the grand scale described by Captain Johnson. One of these colonies was the Republic of Soleil, which bordered Morocco and was founded by Spanish Muslims who had been forced or chose to convert to Christianity during the Inquisition. They professed allegiance to neither the Spanish king nor the Moroccan sultan and decided to pirate both rulers' parties. The Republic of Soleil lasted until the end of the 1600s, when the sultans finally took their land back. There is also a colony that very much did exist, and could be the true candidate for Libertalia as we understand it, though turns out it's nowhere near Madagascar. Charles Johnson, the, the confirmed Charles Johnson, that is, rose to stardom with his play based on of one of England's most infamous pirates, Henry Avery. Avery's high seas reign of terror only spans two years, but that short time frame was enough to earn him the title, the King of Pirates. In 1689, Avery was a member of the Royal Navy, and very good at what he did. Nevertheless, he was discharged after a year and he soon entered the slave trade. He was not a nice person, 
and he used all manner of trickery and cunning to capture innocents off the coast of West Africa. Somehow he decided this wasn't evil enough, so he ended up taking work on a warship. Taking advantage of the crew's contempt for their stingy captain, Avery coerced his fellow shipmates to a mutiny, after which he became the captain of the ship and renamed it the Fancy. And after this, there's so much plundering. By far the Fancy's most famous victory, and what is largely considered the biggest oceanic heist in all of maritime history, took place in the Arabian Sea in August of 1695. What went down here was, essentially, the Ocean's Eleven of piracy. It had become common knowledge among the pirate community that the Grand Mughal, or Emperor of the Mughal Empire of Islamic India, was about to sail his fleet towards Mecca for the annual Hajj, or pilgrimage. Avery joined up with Thomas II on the Amity, Joseph Farrow on the Portsmouth Adventure, Richard Want on the Dolphin, William Mays on the Pearl, and Thomas Wake of the Susanna. It was kind of like the Avengers, but with pirates, right? And together they chased down the Mughal's 25 ships. But stored among this fleet was the prize bounty on board the enormous Ganjisui, which we typically like to English up as the Gunsway, the private ship of the empire's wealthiest merchant, and arguably the richest man on earth at the time. The Gunsway was a leviathan that held 80 cannons and an obscene amount of wealth. And the fancy went and absolutely wrecked their shit, partially because of bad luck. During the siege, one of the cannons aboard the Gunsway exploded, killing a large amount of their crew and turning their attention away from combating the pirates that were boarding them to the rapidly spreading fire. Avery, being an opportunist and a scoundrel, took advantage of the chaos and joined his pirate companions in capturing the vessel. All in all, the battle took about three hours, and the decks of the Gunsway were soon drenched in blood, some of it Thomas II's. He had been killed in a battle with the Gunsway's guardian vessel, and reportedly died from being disemboweled with the cannonball. What happened next is what one source on the internet that most definitely isn't Wikipedia describes as an orgy of horror. Remember, the Gunsway was not a pirate or even a warship. It was a merchant vessel with both tradesmen and civilians, some of them who were just on a religious pilgrimage. When Avery's pirates took control of the ship, they rounded up their prisoners and killed and raped whoever they wished. Since a majority of the treasure had been hidden during the siege, the pirates resorted to torturing anybody to exact its location. Many of the women took their own lives to avoid capture and brutality, but still many more were captured and returned to the fancy as slaves. Whoever remained alive was then let go once the gunsway was stripped of treasure. One of the pirates who committed the atrocity, John Sparks, confessed on his deathbed that the inhuman treatment and merciless tortures inflicted on the poor Indians and their women still affects my soul. According to a general history of the pirates, Avery managed to trick his co-conspirators into leaving him in charge of the loot, only for him to make a hasty getaway. In actuality, the treasure was divided up amongst the pirate leaders, who then quickly disbanded. 
and they were smart to do so because when the Grand Mughal found out what happened, he was furious. He threatened to revoke his trading contract with the British East India Company, which if you remember that name from Pirates of the Caribbean, you know they were a pretty big deal and instrumental in England's imperialistic economy. Obviously, England couldn't have any of that, so they launched a massive manhunt on the instigator of the Gunsway heist. Lucky for Avery, he heard about this all-points bulletin before the heat caught up with him, and he managed to make himself scarce, which was a pretty remarkable feat considering he was dripping with stolen gold and jewels. Rumors abounded that Avery managed to steal away the Mughal Emperor's daughter and fled to start a pirate kingdom in Madagascar, and guess who seized upon this interesting legend? Charles Johnson, playwright of the successful pirate, which conveniently left out that whole raping and pillaging part, in turn portraying the literary Captain Avery as a lovable scamp. But is that what really happened? Did the very real Henry Avery, as a stand-in for the not-so-real James Mission, run off to Madagascar to found Libertalia? History tells us that Avery, at first anyway, ended up on the island of New Providence in the Bahamas. Before his arrival, the epicenter of piracy was the lawless Port Royal, yes, also of the Pirates of the Caribbean fame, which tumbled into the sea during the earthquake of 1692, displacing pirates around the Caribbean, especially in the Bahamas. In New Providence, Avery was able to bribe the governor with his seemingly endless pile of gold and silver. This opened the door for all of Avery's pirate buddies, whose safety was assured by Avery paying off the local politicians in charge of the island. Then in 1706, French and Spanish forces attacked New Providence and Nassau, the island's major city, and the Bahamas' modern capital. The residents of the island, including its leadership, hightailed it out of there. The pirates held off the Spanish and French for a time until the invaders decided it just wasn't worth it trying to smoke out a populace of criminals, and they also took off. This left the pirates with a full run of the island. And wouldn't you know it, they decided to take advantage of their scenario, with Avery's funding, that is, and built a stronghold for themselves. The elected governors were some of the most famous pirate captains of the Golden Age. Benjamin Horngold, Steed Bonnet, Charles Vane, Calico Jack Rackham, and with Blackbeard himself serving as Grand Magistrate. And for a time, it kind of worked. Many unemployed privateers, fresh from the War of the Spanish Succession, were attracted to what had become known then as the Republic of Pirates. And within this republic, average civilians coexisted. Now, we don't know exactly how they were treated, but we do know that the pirates applied their code of conduct, which was largely democratic, towards their new governance. It might not have been as exotic as a hidden city in the dense forests of Madagascar, but hey, if X marks the spot, right? Of course, it didn't last. The pirates, who initially decided to hold off on attacking British vessels, couldn't help themselves and did what pirates do. King George I got wind of this, decided enough was enough, and sent the navy to clean up the place. And the way they went about it was both backstabby and brilliant. The British fleet promised amnesty for any pirates who turned themselves in and put their eye patches and peg legs away for good. Benjamin Horngold, one of the leaders, decided this was a good deal and betrayed his fellow mates, hunting down and capturing the pirates that had once been in his employ. The other captains, for the most part, managed to escape. 
at least for a time, and went on to pursue their careers elsewhere. After all, nothing keeps a good pirate down. And as for Henry Avery and the Gunsway treasure, well, here's the thing. By the time word reached New Providence that there was a target on his back and a bounty on his head, he had already been tipped off by the governor that it was best time to mosey on to safer waters. He told his crew and men that he left behind several different accounts of where he was off to next, preventing them from disclosing his true location should they find themselves captured and interrogated. And what this true location was? Well, we have no idea. The definition of utopia is a place that does not exist. In real life, as in fiction, the Pirate Republic of Libertalia was doomed by the vices that it had led to its creation. Pirates, more concerned with their own fortune than some lofty notion of egalitarianism, attempted to attack Libertalia only to be thwarted by Thomas II and Mission's alliance. Shortly after this, Two set sail for the Indian Ocean in search of more recruits, but his ship was caught in a hurricane and all but himself were lost to the depths. Mission's search party did eventually catch up and rescue him, but after two was safely aboard, the men aboard the rescue ship delivered some rather grave news. You see, after two had departed, a tribe of Malagasy attacked Libertalia, burning the colony to the ground. And shortly after this, Mission and his ship were caught in another tempest. History picks up where fiction leaves off, and the Chronicles of Libertalia have a grief-stricken two venturing off to his final battle with the Gunsway. The video game Uncharted 4 has a plot that concerns the legend of Libertalia, and it has a more realistic end to the pirate colony. Oh, and please skip 20 seconds ahead to avoid spoilers if you haven't played this great game, because you totally should. In the end, it's discovered that the downfall of Libertalia wasn't at the hands of the local natives, but by its own citizens, who rose up in revolt against its founders. Avery, true to his nature, convinces the captains to make off with the communal treasury and sequester it behind a fortified stronghold. One by one, the captains betrayed and kill each other, until only Avery and two, the embodiments of malevolent and virtuous pirate respectively, are left. Their skeletons are found atop the Gunsway treasure hoard, with their swords embedded in each other's ribcages. We tend to romanticize piracy, because we love the idea of righteous rebels. Reality is not so kind. Fiction often parallels this. Thomas, too, was probably not all good. He had blood on his hands. And Henry Avery did use his stolen plunder to try and provide his community with the means to survive against those who would try and oppress or capture them. At the end of the day, all pirates robbed, raped, and killed. And their code of conduct, as noble as it may seem, really didn't do much but to protect themselves. We do see some true light in certain deeds of pirates of other races returning destiny to their own hands, and their white allies teaming up with them to try and build colonies based on merit and innate human rights. In short, pirate history is complicated, fascinating, and bloody. And it's one of those histories where the legends often overshadow the truth, probably for the better. It's much more interesting that way, right? And it seems every major pirate figure has tales of lost treasure that were either buried or undisclosed, 
and perhaps Relic will explore those stories eventually. But Libertalia is not often talked about, and though people have gone in search of it in modern times, no clues have turned up yet debunking or pointing to its existence. That oh-so-reliable Captain Johnson speculates that Avery died in poverty after being cheated out of his wealth. But this is a highly unlikely end to such a cunning pirate. Another account says that Avery retired to the country and lived peacefully to the end, sustained by his gold. A quiet death. Still, others say that Avery did, in fact, eventually go on to found a pirate republic in Madagascar. Whatever the case... After June of 1696, Henry Avery vanishes from the pages of history completely. Then, whatever happened to all of that fabulous and historically documented wealth from the Gunsway heist? Well, only the Dark Fathoms hold those secrets. Depending on who you believe, or what stories you read, the souls of pirates are damned to sail the purgatorial ocean for all eternity. These revenants appear in the form of ghostly crewmen aboard phantom vessels, such as the Flying Dutchman. And if you should ever find yourself at sea, very late at night, and the fog carries in one of these spectral voyagers, you would be bold to ask them where Avery's treasure lies. You are, of course, unlikely to provoke a response. For as they say, dead men tell no tales. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. The amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by Devin. If you like this podcast and want to share your booty, you can leave a four or five star rating on iTunes so other people can find out about it. You can also connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. If you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, and most importantly, corrections, please send me an email at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net, and that's blueberry without the E's. Our Facebook group is The Reliquary, the Lost Treasure Podcast group. Next time... The Halloween season draws nearer day to day, and in the interest of emulating certain other podcasts known for their dark subjects, brooding piano music, and suspenseful, drawn-out narrations, we will be diving headfirst into a darker side of lost treasure. Next time, we travel to the mountains of Greece in search of forbidden knowledge. There, it is said, exist places where the potential to see the future was hidden away forever, possibly because the stories surrounding these mysterious dwellings were the stuff of nightmares. My name is Maxwell, and this is Relic, and the adventure continues. Others say that the author... Others say that the author... Wow. Others say that the author... What the f***?